Well, I invite you to open your uh, Bibles with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians. Paul's uh, first letter to this uh, church at Thessalonica. Interesting, of all of Paul's letters in the New Testament that we have, 1 and 2 Thessalonians may have been the very first ones that we have in our canon. The only other letter that competes with that is the book of Galatians. But uh, it may very well be that First and Second Thessalonians are the very first letters that, that Paul wrote that we have in our canon. So these are, are very special indeed. You know, today whenever we write a letter or send an email or whatever it may be, it's customary for us to put our name at the end of the, of the letter. Uh, it's just kind of our, our style. Now, people know who it's coming from. If you get a letter, they have the return address, so they have an idea. Or they can read your email address before they read the message. But uh, it's interesting that we, in our own custom, we put our name and our information at the very end. The custom in the first century was the opposite. Uh, Every letter that was written kind of in the Greek culture followed a similar pattern, and Paul's letters follow that same pattern, and that is to identify the sender and then the ones to whom the letter is going and then followed by some kind of a greeting, and that's exactly the way we see that uh, Paul is, uh, is addressing the letter to the uh, Thessalonians. So let's begin by kind of diving into the author of the book. And it's interesting that we read Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Now, Paul was the the author of the letter. That's pretty clear. It's inspired by God. But he also includes these two trusted, faithful co-workers, Silvanus and Timothy, who were associated with him in bringing the gospel to the Thessalonians. So they're kind of there with him. Uh, They're with him even in Corinth where he is writing this letter to the Thessalonians. And so he includes them by way of courtesy, uh, by way of endorsement, and by letting them know that these faithful brothers who joined Paul in bringing the gospel to the Thessalonians is still with him now and they send him, they send them their, their greetings. It's also interesting that Paul does not identify himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, which he does in many of his other letters. The reason may be that uh, his apostleship was not being undermined yet in the church at Thessalonica, so he has no need to make reference to his apostleship. But he also mentions Silvanus and Timothy. Now, Silvanus is the same guy called Silas in the book of Acts. Silvanus is the Roman version or the Latin version of his name, and Silas is the Greek form of the same name. We learn from the book of Acts that Silvanus or Silas was not only a leader in the Jerusalem church, but he was also a prophet of God. So when, when Paul and Barnabas came down from Antioch to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem council to determine whether or not Gentiles had to be circumcised or not, 
in order to be saved, they met Silas at the Jerusalem church. And Silas, again, was a leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was also a prophet of God. So, so the early church at Jerusalem, when it was time to send out the results of the Jerusalem council, they sent Silas to go back with Paul and Barnabas to Antioch. They trusted Silas. He was a man of great recognition, not only within the church, but he was a faithful brother, a godly man, a leader in the church. And so they wanted him to go back to, to lend his voice to the uh, results of the Jerusalem council. So he now goes back to Antioch. There it is. And that's where Paul will start his second missionary journey where the red uh, arrow is. So when, when Paul begins his second missionary journey, he normally would have gone with Barnabas, but what happened? They had a controversy overtaking John Mark. John Mark had gone with them on the first missionary journey, but he had bailed out halfway through. So Paul doesn't want to take him on the second missionary journey. So Barnabas <clears throat> takes John Mark, and they go to Cyprus, and Paul chooses Silas to go with him on his second missionary journey. Silas would now be his new team member instead of Barnabas. And Silas's presence with Paul would show Paul's unity with the Jerusalem church because Silas was a leader in the church at Jerusalem, also a prophet of God. And joining Paul, that would lend the unity and the credibility and the endorsement of Paul's ministry from the mother church at Jerusalem. So it's a very strategic choice that Paul makes to take Silas or Silvanus with him on the second missionary journey. It's interesting that after that second missionary journey, uh, Silas no longer goes with Paul. Um, it's only on the second missionary journey that Silas joins the Apostle Paul. Um, unlike Timothy, Timothy will be with Paul basically to the end of his life. So Timothy is a younger man, Timothy is going to be picked up at Lystra. This is after they start the second missionary journey. Uh, Timothy was probably converted under Paul's ministry at Lystra during the first missionary journey. Now Paul is retracing his steps, encouraging the churches, and he wants to, take, he wants to add Timothy to the missionary team. So Timothy was a godly young man. He was well spoken of. Paul wanted to take him with him. His mother, Timothy's mother, was a Jew. His father was a Greek, so he hadn't been circumcised. So Paul had him circumcised so he wouldn't be in offense ministering in the, uh, the, the uh, synagogues of the Jews with a Jewish mother. So he joins the missionary team as well. And what we find interesting <clears throat> is that once they go to Troas, they go up to Philippi, then they go over to Thessalonica. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy are there at Thessalonica. They're preaching. People are getting saved. They're building the church. 
But then they get run out of town by the mob that the Jews basically paid and organized. And the, uh, the mob drove the apostolic team out of Thessalonica, down to Berea. They were there for a short time. Then the mob from Thessalonica came down to Berea, ran them out of Berea. Paul had to go to Athens. Later, Timothy and Silas join him in Athens. And then Paul sends Timothy to go back to Thessalonica. So he's in Thessalonica. Paul ministers in Athens, apparently doesn't have much fruit there. Then Paul goes to Corinth, and he's, and he's anxious for the church at Thessalonica because he had only been there for a short time. He had not really established them as a church yet. So Paul is in Corinth, and he's very full of anxiety over how the church in Thessalonica is doing. Okay, he knows that Timothy is there. He sent Timothy there to try to help them grow and to see how they're doing spiritually because they're under persecution. And he's fearful that the church may not last. Well, Timothy comes from Thessalonica to Corinth and he gives Paul very encouraging words about how the church is doing in Thessalonica. And that's what causes Paul to write 1 Thessalonians followed shortly afterwards by 2 Thessalonians. So turn, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and look at verse 1. Paul describes this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 1, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. So that's when Paul is in Athens. So he now sends Timothy back up to the church at Thessalonica. Now drop down to verse 6 of chapter 3. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, And that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. So now Timothy has come to Corinth, given Paul the good news. And now Paul, out of thankfulness to God's mercy and grace, now writes this letter that we now know as 1 Thessalonians. One of the principles that we see at the outset of this letter is that Paul was committed to a team ministry. Paul was not just out there on his own doing his own thing, but he was very much committed to working with other godly men and advancing the gospel and doing the work of the Lord. That is a pattern that Paul establishes for the local church as well. That's why whenever he went back through his cities that he had established churches in, he would go back and he would also appoint a plurality of elders to govern the church. He believed in the importance of a team leadership, not just one man. 
you put all the, the, the power and authority in one man in a local church, you're prone to all kinds of problems. Pride issues, authority issues. It was established by Paul. It was his own precedence that he set to work and to share the labor with other men. And we're blessed to have a plurality of elders and also deacons within our church as well because that's the apostolic pattern. So now we, we move to the recipients of the letter, and Paul describes them simply as the church of the Thessalonians. Now, this is interesting because the word church in Greek is the word ekklesia, which originally had a very broad general meaning as just a public assembly. Uh, sometimes it was used as a legislative assembly in a, in a city that where certain people would come together and they would make laws and then they would submit them to the citizens to be voted on. Or it could just refer to a group that shared similar beliefs. So the word ecclesia is now applied to the church. It does not refer to the first meaning. And I've, I've heard this lately that somehow the, the, the church as an ecclesia should be some civil governing body uh, and that's a misuse of the word. Doesn't, it meant that in certain contexts. It doesn't mean that in the Bible. Uh, the church is a gathered assembly of worshipers of Jesus Christ. Now, they're to have an influence on the culture and on, on civil responsibilities, but they're, they're, their primary function is to worship Jesus Christ. So they're called out people to worship the Lord. It's also interesting that in the Septuagint, you know what the Septuagint is? We, we summarize it by the LXX, which is the Roman numeral for 70. There are 70 Jewish scholars that translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek around 200 B.C. Because the Jews scattered throughout the, uh, the, the Greek-speaking world had lost the ability to speak Hebrew. So they translated into Greek. So that's mainly what they read from in their synagogues throughout Galatia and Asia and throughout Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and throughout Europe. They used the Septuagint primarily when they read the Scripture. Well, in the Septuagint, the word ecclesia is used for Israel. And I've listed some of the verses there where the, uh, the word for church, the word ecclesia, is actually used for Israel in the Old Testament. Stephen also uses ecclesia for Israel in Acts 7, verse 38, and the author of Hebrews does the same thing in Hebrews chapter 2. The significance of this is that Paul uses the word ecclesia to describe the worshiping body of believers as the church or the ecclesia. And he chose that word for, I think, several reasons. First, because it shows a continuity with Israel in the Old Testament. So the church is the new covenant Israel of God. So there's that connection. So he takes the word, a word used for Israel, ecclesia in the Septuagint, and he applies it to the church. But also, the word ecclesia distinguishes the church from Judaism. Because Judaism began to use the word synagogue for their meeting places. That's where they would meet. 
So on the one hand, the word ecclesia shows continuity with Israel, only Israel in the new covenant now. But it also shows a distinction that the church is different from Israel, the Old Testament Israel. The church is established by the Jewish Messiah, thus the continuity. But it's also Jesus Christ who is the Jewish Messiah, which Judaism rejected. So there is the distinction as well. So once he calls them the church of the Thessalonians, he adds another very important phrase. This church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're in God and in Christ. That's the idea. In other words, this church planted in the city of Thessalonica is a church that is God-centered. It is a church that only has its existence because of God, and it exists in God and in Christ. It's very much, it's not a public assembly, it's not a civil assembly. This is a religious assembly of, of believers who gather together to worship God. They are in God and in Christ. That's their identity. That's their characteristic. So they are established in God and in Christ. They get their life from God. They live in God. They're joined to God in Christ through, through faith. They have a vital union with, with them, like the branch that abides in the vine. You remember John 15? And Jesus said, you are in me and I am in you. So there's this vital union that believers have in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Later on, well actually earlier, Paul told the people at Athens that in Him we live and move and have our being. In God. And so here he's describing that this church is a church that is placed spiritually in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. The preposition in, in Greek, can also be translated by. So both ideas are really in, in view here. They are both in God and they exist by God. It's by God's grace that He saved them and joined them together in the church. So all this is emphasizing that the church is not a mere man-centered social club governed by the ever-changing values of our culture. We are not a business with a consumer mentality trying to draw customers on Sunday morning. So you need the light shows, you need all this other stuff. We're not that. We are a worshiping, God-centered, God-made assembly of believers who believe in and trust in and love and seek to honor Jesus Christ. That's who the church is. And Paul wants to give this young church an anchor for their faith by reminding them of their identity, which is important in light of the fact that they were also going through persecution. So Paul wants to reassure them of their position in God and in Christ, the one and only true God, as opposed to all the paganism that's out there. 
So he wants to secure their faith knowing that they are in God and in Christ. And from God and Christ comes their life, their strength, their stability because they are in God by His grace. They belong to God. Now, one other important observation that in the Greek syntax, when you have one preposition in that connects two nouns that follow. The first noun is God the Father. The second one is the Lord Jesus Christ. This particular construction in Greek indicates that the two, God and Christ, are very intimately joined together. In other words, they are both God. So that we, this church exists in God the Father and God the Son, also called the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Greek syntax makes that emphasis. So both are basically attributed as being divine. And Paul added the Holy Spirit later on, so he affirms the Trinity. But all believers are in and united with both God the Father and God the Son simultaneously. This is just kind of the way Paul is emphasizing it. And this speaks powerfully to your redemption and your protection. Because you are in God. And you are in Christ. Can anything in this universe pry you out of being in God and in Christ? No, nothing can. We are in God and Christ like knowing His family. We're in the ark. We are protected and sealed by God. And it's just a beautiful thing to realize that part of our redemptive blessings is that we are in God and in Christ. And Christ says He's also in us. There's that vital union that we have with our Savior. So from here, Paul then just refers to the Lord Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the one we believe in for salvation. This is the one we love. This is the one we, we seek to follow and serve. The Lord Jesus Christ. The word uh, Lord in Greek here is the word kurios. And again, referring to the Hebrew Old Testament translated into Greek, the word kurios in the Old Testament, Septuagint, translates the name of God, Yahweh, more than any other word does. So when you're reading the Old Testament in Greek, you come across the name Yahweh, it'll have kurios, Lord. And that's the way Yahweh is translated more than any other word is, is used for Yahweh, and it's, it's then, then the word kurios. So what is Paul emphasizing here? He's basically saying, that, the, that Jesus Christ is our Kyrios. He's our Yahweh. He's our Lord. So it's a very strong affirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ. He's our God the Son. Yahweh the Son, if you will. But He is God. He is divine. He is our Lord, our Master, our King. And remember, one of the reasons why... The apostles got run out of Thessalonica 
was because they were claiming there was another king besides Caesar. And that got the whole civil authority issue all up in arms because now they're proclaiming Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And that had very strong political overtones and caused them to be run out of town. But what Paul is emphasizing here is that Jesus is our Lord. He's equal with God. He's, he's Yahweh, Yahweh the Son, but He is our Lord. And that is a powerful concept because when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we believe in the Lord Jesus to save us. We're acknowledging and receiving Him not only as our Savior, but also as our Lord. And this is why Paul, I love what Peter actually says in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is, it, that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Set apart Christ as Lord. And this is something that we as believers need to do all the time. You can't just do it once and call it one and done. Don't have to do it again. It's a daily thing. We have to set apart Jesus Christ as my Lord. I'm not my Lord. I am not my King. I am not my God. Jesus Christ is my Lord. And every day we need to get up in the morning. We need to remind ourselves that I'm not in control. I'm not the master of my fate. I serve a living Lord, and that's Jesus Christ. Christ is our Lord. And that means He needs to be the Lord over every area of your life. Not just the Lord on Sunday morning, but the Lord of Monday morning and Tuesday morning and Wednesday, and the rest of the week. Not just Lord over my religious part of my life, but then I'm the Lord over everything else. He should be the Lord over every area of our life. Which means that whatever I'm doing, whatever I seek to accomplish, whatever my aspirations are, I need to consciously and deliberately submit them all and subject them to my Lord Jesus Christ. I'm doing it to please Him. I'm doing it to honor Him. I'm doing it out of worship of Him because He is my Lord. And that's the significance that He is called our Lord Jesus Christ. That He needs to have sovereign sway over every area of our of our life. Those who strive by the grace of God to live most consistently under the Lordship of Christ will reap the most blessings in the Christian life. And you'll stay out of the penalty box. You know, just think of sports. When you, when you, when you play a sport by the rules, say football, you're running the plays, all your players are playing according to the rules, you can advance the ball. But what happens when you break the rules? You go backwards. When you live under the Lordship of Christ, not that we do it perfectly by any stretch of the imagination, 
But those who are most consistently seeking to live under the Lordship of Christ in every area of our life, they're the ones who are going to have the most success in advancing and progressing in the things of God. Those who are breaking the rules, those who are living under their own lordship, they're, they're, they're trying to, to live independently of the relationship with the Lord, they're going to one be penalized. They're the ones who are going to be going backwards. And life gets harder. Christian life makes less progress because Jesus is not the Lord of every part of my life. Is He the Lord of your life? See, we need to ask ourselves that question. And if you're like me, you immediately feel guilty and you need to say, Oh Lord, you know, help me. I need more grace. But that's the key. He is your Lord in every part of your life. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the, the second word that Paul wants us to know about our Savior is that he's, his name is Jesus. That's his personal name given to him at birth. Instructed by the angel who told Joseph that you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. You know what Jesus means, the name Jesus? It means Yahweh is salvation. Or we can translate it, some say, the Lord is salvation. That's His name. That's what He does. The name fits Him perfectly. He will save His people from their sins. So name Him Jesus. Because the name Jesus means the Lord saves. And this baby is going to grow up to be a man and He's going to save His people from their sins. He can do that because this is a one and only unique little baby. This baby is fully human, yet without sin, so He can represent us on the cross. He can take our sins upon Him because He can be our substitute. He fully shares our nature. He can bear all of your sins. But He's also fully God, so He can fully satisfy the infinite wrath and judgment of God that we deserve. He's the one and only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is no other. He is Jesus, and He alone can save you from your sins. Peter says in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So Jesus is a special name for us because it describes Him uniquely as our Savior. And Jesus, therefore, can say to any unbeliever, someone that is a Christian in name only but not in heart, come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, Jesus calls sinners to come to Him. To come to Him because He can give you rest. Forgiveness and spiritual rest that will last for an eternity. Come and He will give you rest. I don't know if there's someone here this morning that is weary in your sins. You are burdened by the troubles and sorrows of life that your sins have brought your way. If that's the case, Jesus calls you and invites you to come to Him. 
If you're heavy laden, if you're burdened, if you're weary, come to him. Because he and he only can and will forgive you and save you. Come to Jesus, he will set you free. Come to Jesus, he will give you rest for your souls and eternal rest in heaven. Because all the problems that you're facing in this life are but the fruit of a root core problem. And that is our sin. That there is enmity between us and God. And that must be removed before we can ever have rest from God. And Jesus is the only one who can remove it. So this is a precious invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Maybe there's someone here this morning that needs to do that. This is also a great verse for believers as well. Because oftentimes we allow the world and our own troubles to weigh us down so much. We lose the rest and peace that we have in Christ. Jesus says, come to me. I'll restore you. I'll give you that rest. What an incredible promise. And then the third part of the name that Paul says that we are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is that He's Christ. That's equivalent to the Hebrew name for Messiah. The Anointed One is what it means. So that Paul is addressing the fact that the Lord Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's the Anointed One. He's Christ. He fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies of the Jewish Messiah. He is God's anointed prophet, anointed priest, and anointed king. And in Christ, the Jewish Messiah, every believer is now grafted into all the covenant promises that the Messiah fulfills we believe in the lord jesus christ he who is the jewish messiah we are now placed into him and therefore share in all the promises that only he can fulfill we have god the father who loves us as a father who sent his only begotten son the lord jesus christ to come and be our savior and by god's grace we are in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no better place to be than there. Well, now we come finally to the, the blessing. Grace to you and peace. This is uh, Paul's standardized greeting for most all of his letters. Grace comes from, borrowed from the Greek culture, Peace or shalom comes from the Jewish culture. So in effect, Paul is uniting both into the common greeting. The churches, by and large, had both Greeks and Jews in them. So it's kind of a, a combo greeting, if you will. But it's far more than the way the Greeks use the word greeting or the Jews use the word peace. It's, they're much deeper because these words are impregnated with the very grace and glory of Jesus Christ. To understand their meaning, you have to understand the gospel. 
Because both grace and peace are now laden with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he greets them in that way. The word grace generally can be defined as God's kind favor toward the undeserving. In a very general kind of way, that's a, that's a good definition. Uh, Leon Morris said that uh, a New Testament scholar said the word grace basically has two ideas. One, it's God's kind favor towards the undeserving and saving sinners. And secondly, for giving power to the saints to live the Christian life. So grace is God's kindness. It's God's favor towards those who don't deserve it. Paul says we are children of wrath by nature. But rather in love and mercy, He has chosen to save us. We don't deserve to be saved. We deserve to be judged and condemned. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. So it's by grace that we're saved. We don't deserve to be saved. We don't merit it. It's not because we're good people that God saves us. We're sinners. We're enemies of God. But God in His mercy towards those who don't deserve it shows them His favor. And that's God's grace. So not only does it save us, the word grace is oftentimes used in a general way just to God's mercy and imparting all that we need to live the Christian life. Power being one of the big things. So the word grace not only encompasses our justification, our salvation, but also all that we need for sanctification. And this, uh, I want to go back to the Ephesians 2, 8, 9. If you notice this word, for by grace you have been saved. That is a participle in Greek in the perfect tense, which means the significance of that, of a perfect tense, is that it refers to a completed past event with results ongoing into the present. So the way to translate this, if you want to bring all that out in Ephesians 2, 8, is for by grace you have been saved and continue to be saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. So not only your salvation through faith is God's gift, faith is a gift included, but even your sanctification is by grace. It is God's gift as well. It's not a result of your works so that no one may boast. So here, Paul is primarily, since they already have saving grace, they already, they're already justified, so that now he's emphasizing the power, the, the grace we need to live the Christian life. Grace to you, he, he writes to the church. May God give you grace, because as a believer in Jesus Christ, you still need the grace of God. You need His power. You need the fruit of the Spirit. You need all that you need to live triumphantly for Jesus Christ. You need grace. And so Paul is praying in this blessing, this, this uh, invocation that God would impart to them more grace because that's what they need. They need that grace 
to live faithfully for Jesus Christ. Because grace is that dynamic, transforming power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that sets us free from the idolatry of the world to worship God. We need that power to live the Christian life, to stand firm on God's truth, to be filled with the Spirit. We need power. We need grace. And that's why Paul says, grace to you. That's his desire. In effect, this is a prayer. May God give you grace. And then he adds to that peace. May God give you peace as well. The Hebrew concept of peace, shalom, meant wholeness, well-being, prosperity. But again, much more is meant when Paul uses this because this is, this is a peace that is rooted in Jesus Christ. So it's far more than just the Jewish shalom. The word peace in the New Testament can have basically two ideas. It can refer to peace with God, i.e. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That peace with God is a peace that we have automatically when we're justified by faith. That means the hostility is removed. The animosity between us is, is removed. The, the enmity that we have towards God is taken away. God's wrath towards us is taken away. Two enemies are reconciled to be friends. That's peace. We have, we have peace with God. That is a gift that you cannot lose. It cannot change. It doesn't vary up and down. It's an object of peace with God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. We've been reconciled with God. Now they already have that, the, the uh, believers at Thessalonica, so I don't think that's what Paul primarily has in mind, but rather the second meaning, and that is the peace of God. The peace of God is that inner calm that we have when we're trusting in God's character and His redemptive love. Grace is a fountainhead of this blessing, but peace is the river that flows from it. So the peace of God flows out of God's grace as well. So the two are connected. Again, they already have peace with God, but believers in the first century in the church of Thessalonica were in need of, of a growing, constant peace of God. That peace of God certainly can be connected with our consciousness of being justified, being reconciled with God. That peace of God can refer to the inner feeling of the assurance of salvation that believers can have. But the peace of God just refers to a, a, a calmness in our mind, a tranquility in our spirit, even in the midst of storms of life. The peace of God doesn't mean that you live a life without the, the presence of trouble. But you have God's peace in the midst of trouble. In the midst of the storms. This is the peace, again, of Philippians 4, 6, and 7 that we read earlier. Be anxious for nothing. See, there's a storm. 
anxiety, fear, worry, discouragement, the inner storm brewing on the inside. Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your souls in Christ Jesus. It's the peace of God, that inner calm, that even though the world is so chaotic, we can have God's inner calm and peace. Not full of worry and anxiety and fear, but we can have that peace in our hearts. The Thessalonians needed the peace of God because they were undergoing suffering at the hands of their own countrymen. We'll get into that more in chapter 2. They were being persecuted for their faith in Christ. The Jews persecuted them because they were calling Jesus the Messiah who was crucified and raised from the dead and the Jews didn't want to believe it. So they persecuted for being heretics. The Greeks persecuted because they were calling Jesus Lord. And the civil society said Caesar is Lord. And they're saying, no, Jesus is Lord. So there was a combative spirit. And of course, the civil authorities would persecute them as well. So they needed God's peace because their life was not easy. It was in battle. It was in war. And we need the peace of God today as well, do we not? Banks are failing. The economy is suffering due to inflation caused by reckless printing of money. Our national debt is continuing to skyrocket. We're heading for a war with Russia because of our involvement with, in Ukraine. Our borders are overrun. Our own government is targeting its citizens for expressing their First Amendment rights. And the ungodly values are being not only legislated, but celebrated and indoctrinated in our schools and by our government and by the entertainment industry, big business, big tech, continually peddling values that are an abomination in the sight of our God. On top of that, just think of all the challenges and the troubles and trials you face today. We need God's peace. We need the peace of God. Because this life has a tendency to fill us with all kinds of fear, worry, anxiety, stress. We need the peace of God. Yeah, we try to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. We try to be faithful to preach the gospel to the world in which we live. We want to try to vote in good leaders and make good laws in our land, do our part as citizens. But it seems that progress is so slow or even non-existent and anxiety can creep in and steal away our peace. All of going, that's going on in our world today can create a a deep internal fear and anxiety, an emotional storm that we can carry around with us 24-7 if we're not careful. But only God can give us the peace of God. We have peace with God through the blood of Christ. We have the peace of God as we learn 
to rest in the sovereignty, the control, the plan of our Heavenly Father. And then we can have His peace. I love that story of the disciples in the boat. I refer to it often, it seems like. A big storm came on the Sea of Galilee. They're out in the middle of the lake. Fierce gale of wind and waves were crashing against the boat. The waves were sloshing up over the side, starting to fill up the boat. The boat's going to sink out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is sound asleep in the boat. They're terrified. They're full of fear. They're going to lose their lives. They wake up Jesus. They say, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing here? Come on, we need help. Jesus stood up in the boat, commanded the waves and the winds to hush, be still, and immediately they obeyed. The wind fell down and bowed. The waves fell down and bowed. And it was just like glass on the sea. The wind was gone. And suddenly that turmoil and anxiety and fear probably was flooded in with peace in their hearts. The outward storm had been calmed and the inward storm had been calmed as well. Our God still rules the winds and the waves. I don't know what waters are crashing up against your boat today. I don't know what winds are threatening to capsize your life, steal away your joy, your peace. But we worship a God who still is the, is the Lord over the wind and the waves, is He not? Does He not control the world that He created? Did God not tell through an angel to Nebuchadnezzar that that God is a ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men at times. God does that. The angel told Nebuchadnezzar in a vision at night. So that not a hair from your head falls to the ground, not a sparrow falls to the earth apart from the will of our God. So let the people of God trust in God. Let us find the peace of God, the inner calm, trusting that our God is in control. I don't understand what the plan of God is. But the people of God oftentimes find themselves in storms. And yet in the midst of it, as the Thessalonians were going through a storm, Paul knew that. And he, the desire of his heart, was God give them grace, give them power, and give them peace. In 1950, I'm sorry, in 1555, Nicholas Ridley, one of the Puritan almost, he's a little before the Puritans, but one of the gospel preachers in England during the reign of Queen Mary he had been arrested and he was going to be burned alive at the stake the following morning how would you react to that the civil authorities just come up to you and they say by the way tomorrow we're going to burn you alive why 
Well, because of his faith in Christ. He opposed many of the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. Bloody Queen Mary was a Roman Catholic queen. She hated the Protestant faith. She's going to exterminate every one of them. She can find them. And she found about 280 of them, burned them all alive at the stake. Nicholas Ridley was one of those. By the way, he was tied up at the stake with his good friend Hugh Latimer. They both burned together. But the night before he was to be executed by being burned alive, his brother came to meet him. And just imagining what must be going on in Ridley's heart, his brother said, Brother, I want to be here with you all night long just to be with you, just to comfort you because of what's going to happen. And Nicholas Ridley turned to his brother and in kind words he said, not needed because once you leave this place, I plan to go to bed and get a good night's sleep. And he did. He had peace in the midst of a storm. The peace of God where life can be collapsing all around you and yet in your soul, you entrust your life, your, your soul, your fortune, your money, your reputation, your business, your work. You entrust it all into the hands of your God who loves you, who's in control, and has a purpose that oftentimes we do not understand. And if by the grace of God you can do that, you can walk in the peace of God. You see, all believers are in need of these two blessings. We need an ongoing supply from God of His grace and His peace. We never outlive our need for these blessings. Grace, because by nature we're still unworthy. We're often weak and distracted and prone to wander. We need God's grace in our life. But we also need His peace because oftentimes we're so full of turmoil and trouble and fearful and anxiety that we need that calming presence of God in our hearts when we learn to trust in Him and give our future and give our lives into the hands of God and just leave it there. And when we do that, when we trust in the Lord, He whose mind is stayed on Thee, He will keep in perfect peace then the peace of God can fill our hearts. Well, may God give each of us this morning uh, an ample amount of grace and peace. If we don't have that this morning, let's just ask God. It comes from our Father. It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, and He will give it. Again, Isaiah 26, verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And may God help us to have both his grace and his peace. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this um, salutation from the Apostle Paul who knew the struggles that this church was going through. And in great fatherly tenderness of heart, Paul desired that God would place upon them this grace and this peace. 
He reminds them that their security, their existence, their life is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So they are safe and secure in the hands of God. But we all need more grace, Lord. We all need more peace. So would you give that to us this morning, Lord? Would you calm the storms that oftentimes we carry in our hearts with all the worry and anxiety and just give us a joy and, a, and just that tranquility of heart knowing that you are on your throne, you're in control, and we can trust in you. So Lord, help your children, for we are weak, but you are strong. So grant us, Lord, your grace and peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.